Well, I am thankful for this Memorial Day. I think about all the people in history, and especially people in the United States, uh, military uh, forces that have given their life for other people, given their life for our country, for our way of life, have given their life to save their brothers and sisters in arms. What an incredible sacrifice. Jesus says, no, greater love has no one than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. And I'm very thankful for that. And we are focusing on this, this time in Jesus' life. We've hit that pinnacle where Jesus is going to give his life for mankind. And the thing about Jesus' sacrifice and death is that it was so much more significant than any sacrifice anyone has ever made. And that's not to, to minimize the sacrifices that people have made, but what Jesus did is incredibly unique. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at two things. We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at two things. We're going to look at the betrayal of Jesus by his people. And the, the two things that should really stand out in that section is that it takes an illegal trial to convict Jesus because Jesus was righteous. He was without, if Jesus would have had a fair trial, a proper Jewish trial, he would have been released. He was only condemned because the entire process was illegal. Uh, the, the second thing in that first section is that it, it does take an illegal trial to convict Jesus, but Jesus clearly proclaims his deity, that he is the Messiah. And that is actually why they kill him. The, the second thing that we're going to be looking at this morning is the betrayal of Peter, how Peter denied Jesus. And, and so we see who Jesus is, and then we'll be considering what is the nature of salvation, genuine salvation, because here Peter denies Jesus. And we know what Jesus has said throughout his entire ministry. He said, anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus has made that message clear. Anybody who values their own life more than following Jesus cannot be Jesus' disciple. And yet we have this very clear statement from Jesus about the disciples, that the 11 disciples, including Peter, were genuine believers, genuine followers of Christ. And so then we look at this denial and we say, well, how do these things fit together? Who was Jesus and what does it mean to follow Jesus and to be a genuine follower? And, and one of the amazing things for us to do and for you to do would be to read through this section of scripture and just think about um, Peter and Judas. They're, they're two wonderful comparisons because they both, in a sense, follow the same path, and in one sense, they both betray Jesus. In one sense, they're both sorrowful afterwards, and yet one hangs himself, and the other's restored. What makes the difference between a person following Jesus with all of their failures and a person who doesn't know Jesus? These are some of the things that we see in this passage and in many sections of Scripture. But one of the things for us to remember uh, for Jesus is for us to just think about this, and we'll be looking this morning, if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, is where we'll start. And I just want to remind you that what Jesus said, 
And Jesus said this in John 6, 32. Then Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not, was it, <coughs> excuse me, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father that gives you true bread from heaven. Jesus is the true bread. And in John 16, 32, Jesus says this, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So Jesus, the true bread from heaven, came, was abandoned by everybody, and yet he was not abandoned by his heavenly Father. So Jesus was never alone. And one of the things we think about in our life is uh, sometimes we're abandoned and we're betrayed by treacherous people. It's like Judas. Sometimes we're abandoned and betrayed by misguided people. That's the disciples and Peter. Sometimes we're abandoned and betrayed by weak people. And one of the important things for us to remember is in some cases we are the ones who are abandoning and betraying Jesus and sometimes even our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so no matter what happens, we are never alone. Jesus is with us. God the Father is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And when, as true believers, when we fail, there is an always an opportunity for repentance and restoration. And one of the other things that we see in this whole section is that this betrayal of Jesus, it is so amazing. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God didn't just know what was going to happen. God planned what would happen. And he actually promised it in Genesis 3.15 where he said, I'm going to send a seed. Sometimes we look at negative situations, bad things that happen, and we think to ourselves, God can turn bad things into good. But one of the things that we need to think about, this is the amazing thing about the power of God, is that God doesn't just turn bad things into good. God sometimes intends bad things to be good. Like in Joseph, right? When Joseph was handed over and he says to his brothers, he says, you, in, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. There was an intention. He doesn't say, you meant this for evil and God turned it into good. In this, it doesn't just say, well, God knew that Jesus would be betrayed. No, God planned that Jesus would be betrayed. And that is something that just gives us such incredible confidence and, and incredible comfort that no matter what happens to us in our life, life is never out of control. God always is in control. God always has a plan to bless his children who know him and who love him. That's Romans 8, right? God uses all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And one of the, one of the just the amazing things is that that includes our wrong choices. Those things that God says, don't do this. And then you do it. And in one sense, it would be right for us to look at that and say, I brought this upon myself. I am suffering because I disobeyed God. It is my fault that this is happening. That's true and that's right. But then you could take a step back and say, but God isn't surprised by this. 
He actually is going to use this circumstance. He's going to use this to bless me in my life. That's what we see with Peter's betrayal. It didn't just happen. It was prophesied that the disciples would be struck and that they would scatter. And Jesus tells Peter, you're going to betray me, and then after you betray me, come back and serve. And so for Peter, what an incredible comfort. We can think more about this later, but what an incredible comfort for Peter when he's devastated, when he's crushed, to be able to look back and say, not only did Jesus know this was going to happen, but this was part of God's plan. And that, by the way, in no way removes the personal responsibility of what Peter did. And so uh, we got it. Let's jump into this. It is so good and so encouraging the things that we can learn here. So just to kind of give you a little context in our story this morning, um, they've been celebrating the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper. Then he washes the disciples' feet. It's possible to wonder about the nature of true salvation, as I mentioned. But in this whole process of Jesus washing Peter's feet, Jesus is clear that the 11 disciples are genuine believers, followers of Christ. This is what he says. And, and you just got to love this, this statement of commitment from Peter. He's so misguided, but his heart really is for the Lord. John chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Do you remember that? And Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's like, okay, if it takes getting washed to be with you, then wash, wash all of me. And then in verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus categorizes all 11 disciples as clean, but says Judas is not clean. A contrast. And then as they leave, John 14 through 17, Jesus is going to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. You're better off for me to leave. And then in John 17, he prays for them. And this is really cool because he prays not only for his disciples, but he prays for everyone who would believe through them. Like when you read John 17, think about this. Jesus prayed for you. Man, I love that. I just think about the godly, faithful people that I want to be praying for me. And then I take a step back and just think, Jesus himself prayed for me. And so that's what happens. And then Jesus is arrested, and he's taken to, An um, he's taken to uh, Annas. Now, that's not recorded in Matthew, but Jesus is taken to Annas. So we're going to read Jesus' second trial. His first trial is before Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest. And in that trial, um, John, the Apostle John, is likely with Peter. 
And, and John is likely known to the high priest. So John actually gets Peter into this area. So John goes, and, and, and Peter's standing outside, and they let John in because John's a friend of the high priest. So when they're doing this trial, um, John gets to come in. And then he goes to the servant girl who's watching the, the gate, and he says to her, hey, <laughs> that's Peter, my friend. Can he come in? And so because of John, they allow Peter into the courtyard where this is all going to take place. And by the way, that is the first time that Peter denies Jesus is during the trial with um, Annas. And in that, they're questioning Jesus about his teaching, and he just says, I taught everywhere. Don't ask me what I taught. Go get people and ask them what I taught. And Jesus is struck and Peter denies Jesus during this time. And then Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest, his son-in-law. And all of this happens in the same building. I'll show you a picture of what the buildings may have been like. Let's read verse 57 to 68 in Matthew. This is the trial that we're going to look at this morning. Matthew 26, 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And one of the other gospel accounts adds to this, even though they, they, they both kind of testified to the same thing, their testimony didn't agree. Even their testimony didn't agree. And then the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? You know, this is an amazing description of something that happened. And when you think about this accusation that Jesus committed blasphemy, but blasphemy was actually committed by everybody there. Um, blasphemy is to disregard, to disrespect God, um, to be irreverent toward God. And look how they treated Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. That is unthinkable. Now, this was an illegal trial. And that's what it took because Jesus was righteous. Now, when you think about legal systems, 
the Jewish nation, they had a very good legal system. God had laid out the way to, um, the way to um, conduct trials and to determine guilt and innocence. And the problem with trials is that um, trials are conducted by human beings, and sometimes human beings make mistakes. Trials are also conducted by human beings, and sometimes human beings are corrupt. And so um, God set up a legal system to minimize mistakes and to minimize corruption. And that's why, in order to convict Jesus, they had to ignore their own rules. So here are a few things. First of all, no capital trial could be held at night. And this trial was held at night. You could not conduct a trial at night. Capital trials and punishment could not happen on the same day. You couldn't rush somebody to trial, conviction, and execute them. That was illegal. You couldn't do that. Um, in capital cases, not everyone is allowed to argue for conviction. Let me just show you. This is, I'm not going to quote all the other elements of the trial, but let me show you this one. It says this. It says, in property cases, all judges and even disciples argue for either acquittal or conviction. In capital cases, all argue for acquittal, but all do not argue for conviction. Um, what was supposed to happen in a capital trial, when somebody was on trial for their life, everybody was supposed to argue for acquittal. Everyone was supposed to try to poke holes in the testimony, to not take lightly the execution of another person. Everybody was supposed to be on the side of the person being charged. That is not what happens in this case. They're all trying to find witnesses to testify against Jesus. According to the Jewish law, nobody could be railroaded the way they railroaded Jesus. And so there are a lot of things about this. The other thing is they end up convicting Jesus based on his own testimony. But according to Jewish law, you could not be convicted based on your own testimony. It took the witnesses of other people to convict you. That's incredible when you think about what these people did. And, and the worst thing is that they, their, their great outrage was that Jesus blasphemed dishonored, disrespected God, that, that, that this chief priest is tearing his robes. He's so upset by the way Jesus is blasphemed by claiming to be God, while at the same time they violate everything God has said. Let me just ask you, did they care about what was right? Did they care about God's reputation? Did they care about honoring God? No, that was all an act. And that's one of the things you see when Jesus claims to be the Messiah, they could have then tried that. Okay, let's test this out. Jesus says he is the Messiah. Well, where was he born? Where does the Bible say the Messiah would be born? What does the Bible say about the lineage of the Messiah? What does the Bible say about the things that the Messiah would do? Do you remember when John the Baptist sent his disciples to go ask, Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And what did Jesus say? He said, go tell John what you see. The miracles, the healing, the raising people from the dead. 
they could have then, if they were interested in truth, said, okay, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Let's test that to see if it's true. And that is not what they did. They immediately convict Jesus. You know, human justice is never perfect. Mistakes are made. But God's law was designed to avoid the human errors. But, but no matter how hard people try, mistakes can be made. I think about, I just recently heard about two people that have been on death row for um, like 30 years, and they're arguing to allow um, DNA evidence to come in to, to test whether or not they're really guilty. And I just think about the fact that there are times that people are unjustly convicted of things. Sometimes people are released when they should be convicted. But ultimately, God is the faithful judge, and, and God never gets it wrong. We don't always have justice in this life, but there will be justice in eternity. And one of the amazing things is these, these men that all sat around judging Jesus will one day stand before him, and they will be judged. There's always justice with God. Let's just think about the way they conducted this. Uh, they were seeking false testimony. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false, false testimony against Jesus. They may put him to death. And they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Um, and the last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make against what these people testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. That was how weak their case was. They're producing all these false witnesses. None of the testimony agrees. Like imagine that. You go to trial and the defense attorney waits for the prosecution. The prosecution puts on its case. And then when it's your turn to defend yourself, your defense attorney just says, Actually, their case was so bad, we don't even need to put on a case. We rest. Like, that's how bad this trial was. I often think about um, Jewish justice and what it meant to be a false witness. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16, uh, I think this is one of the ways that in our culture we do have penalties for perjury, but they're not what they should be. Uh, our culture would be far better off if we used the Jewish law regarding perjury. This is what it says here in Deuteronomy. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, it, then if both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall inquire diligently. It was the, these judges that were railroading Jesus, it was their job to diligently evaluate the charges that were brought. And if the witness is a false witness, if the witness is a false witness and it has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. You shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit evil, any evils among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life 
for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, there's a murder trial and somebody bears false witness and the consequence was execution. You don't fine a perjurer. You don't put them in jail. If they were uh, testifying to have somebody executed, you execute that witness. So all of these false witnesses, had they been following the Jewish law, they were trying to put Jesus to death. Every one of those false witnesses, according to Jewish law, should have been executed. Now think about that. Somebody lies in some civil suit, and it turns out that they lied. Whatever was being sued for, they have to pay. Now if we had a legal system like that, do you think people would be a little more careful about their testimony? And the whole purpose of this in the Jewish law was to say, if you do this kind of a thing, uh, everybody better be afraid. You'd be so careful when you were testifying not to mess things up. I thought about some trial I heard about where somebody was railroaded, been in jail for years. When they finally released that person, like that was the compensation. Oh, we're sorry you've been in jail for 20 years. And they let him out. And the prosecutor that suppressed evidence should have gone to prison and served the, uh, should have served the, the sentence that that man was convicted of and needing to serve. But what happened to the prosecutor and the people who, who did things that were wrong in that case? Nothing. And so anyway, um, how, how do you think they convinced these witnesses to bear false testimony against Jesus? It's because the ones responsible for pronouncing judgment were the ones actually that were corrupt, that had sought this false testimony. And then in this case, Jesus proclaims his personal identity. He is silent until the priest says, are you really the Messiah? And that's when Jesus speaks up. Reminds me of Isaiah 57, 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before a sheep or its, its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then this is what Jesus says when they ask him who he is. He says, you've said so. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And I tell you that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, Jesus is quoting Psalm, uh, he's referring to Psalm 110, verse 1, and also Daniel 7, 13. Um, Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven came, and there was one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus talked about how he would come on the clouds. And then you see just the utter contempt um, toward Jesus because as soon as he said this, they all vote for conviction. There's no trial to verify what Jesus has said. And they start spitting on him and physically beating him in a courtroom. Like, could you imagine that? The judge comes down off the bench and starts spitting at and hitting the, the person that was on trial. 
This is such an illegal trial and was conducted because people had, these leaders had contempt. They did it at night so no one would see. It's amazing that they said, well, we don't want to try Jesus during the feast because everybody's going to be here. And they were afraid of the people. And they end up doing this illegal trial to hide what they're doing from people. Jesus was betrayed by the very leaders who were supposed to be leading the nation to recognize the coming Messiah. They were the ones who were supposed to be leading the nation to worship him. The Jewish religion at this time, the Jewish religion was not a false religion. This was the true religion. And that we, we see the same thing today where sometimes there are people who, who name the name of Christ. They're in like Christian churches, but they're corrupt they don't know God, and they lead people astray the way these Jewish leaders were leading the nation astray. And so that's the external. But Jesus is not only betrayed by his nation, uh, Jesus is betrayed by a personal friend. Let's read this next section. And, and we've already covered uh, Peter's overconfidence and pride when he felt better than other people, his failure to pray. And, and the worst thing is that Jesus says, Peter, you're going to betray me. And Peter says, no, Jesus, you're wrong. I just want you to know, anytime that you're thinking or saying something that includes Jesus, you're wrong. Like you should just stop right there and reevaluate. Uh, <laughs> Let me go a step further. Anytime you read something in the Bible and you say, that's wrong, same thing. And we're going to see his failure, and we know that Peter's restoration is coming. Let's read this. Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, the bystander came up to him and said, P uh, and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. Now just a little bit of um, background here. Um, first, when you compare the, the description of Peter's denials in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's included in all four Gospels, it's really hard to try to fit these denials together. And there are some differences. Um, in Mark, um, it says, Jesus said, before the rooster crows, tw twice you will deny me three times. And so when you put these things together, it's really challenging to work out. How does this lay out? How, how, how do these things all fit together? And one of the things that is a, such an encouragement is some people say that Mark wrote first and then Matthew copied Mark and that all these disciples, that the, the gospel writers all copied each other and then they just kind of made changes. Um, these, um, 
These changes are not an expression of somebody changing things. Nobody would copy this and write it differently. It'd be super easy to just copy it. The differences in the Gospels demonstrate a difference in eyewitness accounts. And you might have a conversation, and one eyewitness remembers the beginning part of the conversation. The other eyewitness remembers the middle part of the conversation. The other person remembers the ending part of the conversation. So they each record it differently. The differences don't express um, inaccuracy. They, they, descri- they, they describe and express actual eyewitnesses. And so if you had m- multiple people, um, that's one of the ways you f- actually find false testimony, is if you get people that witnessed it and witnessed an event and they each say the exact same thing, you're like, okay, somebody got together to tell this story and put this story together. The differences are not contradictory, but they're part of expressing the reliability of the account. And I won't get into all the ways that, that people try to reconcile what happened here, but I'll just tell you that we can be confident that each account is accurate. And even if it's a struggle to put them together, they are each accurate. Now, this is a personal betrayal. The Bible tells us that, that uh, Jesus' eyes meet Peter's eyes. Luke 22, 6, but Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. So how'd that happen? How is it that Jesus is seeing Peter? Now, there are a few different traditional houses of the high priest. Um, This is the Catholic traditional house of the high priest. So they they think this is where that happened. Um, This is another um, area. This is the Armenian traditional house of the high priest. But if you look at this picture, you see how there's rooms up in that second floor and there's a courtyard in the bottom. Here's another example of the type of building where this would have occurred. So Peter would have been down in this courtyard and this, these trials would have taken place up on that second floor where Peter could actually, as he's sitting there, he can watch Jesus' trial. He can hear what's happening. He can see what's happening. Think about how devastating that would be for Peter. Um, it says that Peter and John followed because they wanted to see the end. And so they're sitting there and they're watching Jesus, who's always been in control. Um, they were, they've been afraid. They were afraid to go see Lazarus because they're like, oh man, they're going to kill us if we go there. And, they, and you remember Thomas, he's like, well, let's just go and die with him. And so they've been afraid, but, but nobody's ever been able to lay a hand on Jesus. They wanted to kill him, but his time wasn't right. And finally, Peter is seeing this, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Peter's watching these miracles where Jesus says, who do you seek? And Jesus says, I'm he, and they all fall on the ground. And then Peter cuts off an ear, and Jesus picks up an ear and puts it back on this guy's head and heals this guy. And now Peter is sitting, and he's watching Jesus be be tried. He's watching the false testimony, and he's watching people begin to physically beat Jesus. That has never happened. And all of a sudden, he's seeing that bewildered, and, and he's just, he's devastated, The other thing is he didn't pay attention to what Jesus said to him. He said, Peter, uh, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. In the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter was sleeping, um, Jesus is saying, he, he wanted his disciples with him and he's saying, pray for me. But then he says to Peter, he says, Peter, pray that you will not enter temptation. And what does Peter do? He goes to sleep. 
because he's so overconfident. And so Peter is here. Instead of avoiding this situation, he's put himself right in the middle of incredible temptation because he's watching this happen and all of a sudden he starts being identified as one of Jesus' disciples. Now he should have remembered that Jesus said, I will not lose any of my disciples. Jesus was protecting him. And by the way, um, he should have thought about the fact that I can see Jesus, but Jesus can see me. And one of the things you see in that, the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus is in his greatest moment of trial. And he's saying, Peter, pray. He, he's, he's concerned for his disciples. He's encouraging his disciples. He's caring for his disciples in his greatest moment of trial. And Jesus being beaten in the midst of his trial, about to be railroaded and crucified, still was there loving and caring for his disciples, but that was not on Peter's mind. Peter's like, man, what am I going to do? I'm in trouble. They're about to discover me, and that's going to happen to me. And Peter starts denying Jesus. Now, um, so this is a personal betrayal. Jesus sees Peter betray him. Personal. It's insistent. Like, think about this. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father. And Peter's going to stand here, and he's going to swear that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, I've heard a lot of people say that Peter was using profanity. Have you ever heard that? He's swearing. He's cursing. He's using profanity. You ever, you ever hear that? I often wonder why people say that. that. That's a 20th century understanding of these words. Cursing. Uh, Peter wasn't cursing in the sense of using bad language. He wasn't swearing in the sense of using bad language. Have you ever heard uh, kids say things like, I cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? It's a way of saying, I promise that I'm telling the truth. And if I don't tell the truth, then may this curse befall me. This was Peter just adamantly saying, I don't know Jesus, and calling a curse on himself if he's lying. To swear is to say, you know, have you ever heard somebody say something like, I swear on the grave of my mother and father or my kids or whatever. That's a way of saying, I'm telling the truth. That's what Peter was doing as adamantly as possible. He was saying, what I'm saying is true. I don't know Jesus. He's adamantly denying Jesus. And then Jesus looks at him and it just says this. And immediately the rooster crowed, and we know Jesus looks over and he sees Peter. And in that moment, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter has this incredible sense that he betrayed his friend who loved him, who was caring for him. And he wept bitterly. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a lot of people who sin, and they feel bad about it. There's a lot of people who do things that they shouldn't do, and they're overcome with grief. And that is one of the differences between believers and and unbelievers. 
See, believers and unbelievers can, can both feel grief and sadness over sin, but when a believer feels grief and sadness, they repent. They turn away from sin. They look at their sinfulness. Peter looks at his denials. He says, that's terrible. I wish I wouldn't have done that. God, forgive me for that. That's how believers respond to sin. They don't say, oh, man, I wish I wouldn't have got caught. Look at this. Now I'm going to get a ticket. Now I'm going to have to pay a fine. Now look at these things going wrong. I wish I wouldn't have married the wrong person. Now my life is miserable and it's terrible and and I wish I wasn't in this mess and, and I just need to get out. That's not how true believers, they say, God, I disobeyed you in my marriage choice. Forgive me for that. And now, married in a very difficult marriage because of the choices I made, God, help me to obey you. Help me to honor you. I got into this mess by disregarding you. Help me to get out of this mess by obeying you. Unbelievers, on the other hand, say, yeah, I I disregarded God, and now my life's miserable. So I will disregard again and go find somebody else to marry. Um, There's a lot of people who have grief. And for some people, it does not lead to repentance. It just leads to, man, I wish my life wasn't a mess. Whereas other people say, no, I've dishonored God, and God, forgive me. Difference between Judas and Peter Um, Peter repents, Judas hangs himself. Very big difference in this. So where did Peter go wrong? You ever thought about that? What should Peter have been doing? Let me just rattle off a few things. Um, Peter should have thought about the fact that God sees everything. See, Peter had forgotten all about Jesus. He was so focused on himself, and now he was going to get himself out of this mess that he forgets that Jesus sees him and Jesus knows. And he should have been living his life mindful of the fact that God knows everything. God sees everything. Nothing is done in secret. Like, think about how that would avoid our sinful choices when we're running off disobeying God. If we would have just think, you know, actually God sees everything I do. He knows everything I think. God sees everything all the time. Uh, Proverbs 5.21, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. Uh, Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes with whom we must give an account. Uh, Peter was focused on himself, and he disregarded God's warnings. He disregarded Jesus' warnings. It's kind of like when Peter was walking on water, and he took his, took his eyes off Jesus, and he looked at the waves, and he started to sink. He should have been focused on Jesus, You know, Peter wasn't praying. Think about this. Peter should have been there. He should have been praying, God, strengthen me not to deny Jesus. He should have been praying for Jesus. Um, He should have been praying to his heavenly father, help Jesus endure this. Help him to be faithful. Help those people persecuting Jesus to come to know Jesus. Um, Lord, as Jesus is being crucified, help people see who he is. He could have been praying for the salvation of the thief on the cross who got saved. He could have been praying for the salvation of the Roman soldiers who watched it and got saved. 
Peter should have been praying for Jesus and praying for the people seeing this. Instead, he's focused on himself. He was fearing men. He didn't think about the fact that Jesus is all-powerful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he protected us. Our whole life, Jesus has been protecting us. He should have been thinking about Psalm 1-6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Or Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Peter should have been sitting back saying, man, I have a front row seat to the redemption of mankind. This is amazing. And he should have been trusting Jesus for his protection, and he should have told the truth. You ever wonder what would have happened if Jesus was sitting there in the courtyard? You're one of the followers of Jesus. Yeah, I am. That's my master. And, and he's, he's being crucified the way he said he would be crucified. What would have happened? Now, he was afraid he'd be killed. Would he have been killed? See, we know the answer to that question. It's no. The same way Jesus had been protecting him, he would have protected him then. And he should have just told the truth. So that's what, where Peter went wrong, and that's what Peter should have done. And it's very easy for those of us who are sitting here to look at Peter and say, Peter, you should have done that. This is what you should do. This is how you should have lived as a Christian. But I just want you guys to all know we all face similar things. It's no different. And every single one of us has a responsibility to look at the mistakes that Peter made and learn from them, to look at what we see in all of Scripture. You know, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were actually thrown into the furnace. And did God take care of them? Every single one of us needs to approach life and say, God, I love you, I'm going to obey you, I'm going to honor you, and I am going to trust you to take care of me. I'm not going to take life in my own hands. How many of us do that? That's what Peter did. Now, if you do that, if you look at your life and you've done that, you want to know what the encouragement is? God loves Peter. He forgave Peter. He restored Peter. And guess what Jesus does for you and I when we fail? It's, in fact, the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And we know from John that for Peter... Jesus shows up and he says, Peter, do you love me more than the rest of these? That's what Peter said. And Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my lambs. Well, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know, you love, uh, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And then he says to Peter a third time, Jesus, do you love me? Or Peter, do you love me? And he says, Jesus, you know all things. He says, care for my lambs. Jesus took Peter, he restored him. He said, don't forget why I saved you. Continue in ministry. What, what a powerful restoration. And that's what Jesus does for you and me. And for, for many of us, we encourage compromise. We just compromise in our life over and over. That is not what God wants for believers. God wants faithfulness. He wants repentance, and he wants a body of Christ that comes alongside and encourages people when they're struggling. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the way that you love us. We all fail so many times because we have a lack of faith. We don't trust you. And yet, Lord, we see your love, your forgiveness. We are so thankful that our standing before you 
is not based on our strength. Lord, it is based on your love and your transformation of our heart. And Lord, the fact that there is always an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Lord, help us to live faithful lives in your name. Amen.